So speaking of uh, running around through uniforms and not getting arrested, I know you told me a story once. Do you want to go to prison? (laughs) (laughs) No, um, I'm pretty sure the statute of limitations for trespassing has long passed. So back in uh, where you when you were here, how did you get those shots that look like they were on base? I I snuck onto base and I (laughs) boarded them through a bag or a gym bag. (laughs) with a hole in it seriously <laughs> seriously and i actually wore my military uniform onto those sites oh and walked, god walked, walked and just walked <laughs> did anyone have any idea what was going on or no no i mean because it yeah and that's that's the other great thing about you know uh, about the pro streamer camera is that it, it, you know, the, the way that we were doing it and, and the way that we were lighting it or shooting, it was all very guerrilla style filmmaking regardless. So you didn't need anybody. Oh, uh, So did you ever get a close call as far as um, almost getting? We got the cops. Yeah, we got the cops called on us. Uh, we, we, we went to the there was one scene in Garrison that we wanted to. Uh, uh, we wanted to set up an actual military checkpoint. And so I had, uh, I had actors dressed up as MPs um, with uh, airsoft M4s. And we went around to the backside of Camp Bullis to where there was a, an actual like checkpoint fence, but it was unoccupied. And we tried to set up an actual checkpoint where like the actor is going to drive through and they're going to check his ID and then they're going to wave him through a very simple setup scene. And so in order to be able to do it properly, we had to rent a generator, set up lighting. And we were probably we're minutes away from shooting the shot when M- actual MPs showed up on one side of the fence. And then SAPD showed up on the other side of the fence. On today's episode, I talk with founder of Alamo City Studios and former paratrooper Kerry Valderrama. Kerry joined the Army pre-9-11 to only live through the experience and to deploy to Afghanistan. We talk about that deployment and his love of filmmaking. We also talk about his first film, Garrison, which he created on a shoestring budget using guerrilla-style filmmaking techniques. And he got worldwide distribution. We also talk about his latest project, OBE, a graphic novel, which is a detective story set in the future in San Antonio and has to deal with an astral projection murderer. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of After the Battle Campfire. All right, you guys hear it all the time. The typical, if you like this episode, please rate us, subscribe to us, leave a comment on iTunes or Spotify, wherever. Well, it really does make a difference for this podcast. We're small. We're trying to get bigger and all of this feeds the algorithm so that iTunes or Spotify or Pandora, wherever you find us at, will rate us higher and higher with the more likes and comments that you guys leave. And always, if you guys find value in these episodes, please leave us a comment on the episode or on the show uh, page. And the best way to help us is to share it off. So again, thank you. And we will talk to you soon. Started a podcast and got a whopping like an hour and a half in and found out that Zoom stopped recording four seconds into the podcast. Oh, yeah. Okay. Not no, a good thing. Uh, no. Uh-uh. 
No. Well, technology is crazy, though. I mean, I know we've done events uh, in the past that had just frozen in, you know, mid-conversation or dropped in mid and yeah. Well, I'm doing some experimentation right now. I think I'm pretty close to being able to do one in person with two microphones and actually not have to do Zoom. So you'll probably be first on the list to come back on when uh, we get there. I'm telling you, I'm, I'm ready to go. All right. So we're back again and I'm here with Carrie Velodrama. Velodra- I can never say your name right. Velorama. He is the CEO of Alamo City Studios. I met him probably five years ago, give or take, at a film event. Carrie is also a former soldier. So we're going to talk about where he started his time in the army and what got him into film. Carrie, say hello. Hello. Great to be here. So Carrie, let's start in the beginning. Um, I know you live here in San Antonio, but where did you grow up? Well, army brat, right? So my father was special forces ranger and um, I was born in Panama in the Anacon Canal Zone and then raised in South America, in Bolivia and Peru. My mother's Bolivian. And most of my life was spent traveling, uh, traveling throughout the, uh, throughout the world, throughout uh, North, Central, South America. Oh, okay. So growing up in, as an American child of a military member overseas, how was that? Did we get stuck? Yeah, for some reason it was it was it was frozen for a little bit. All right. So I was asking, um, as a an American child of a military member, how was it growing up overseas, traveling as uh, much? Sure. You know, I mean, it it, it was commonplace uh, when when I was little. I I really didn't uh, know anything other than uh, traveling and uh, my parents uh, working for the government. Um, and then of course, when I graduated from high school, uh, in Lima, Peru, uh, moved to Austin, Texas, cause that's where my brother was at the time. And then shortly after that at 19, I joined the military myself. Did you have an intention prior to, uh, graduating high school to go military? Uh, no, but once again, you know, my father was in the military. My grandfather was in the military, uh, on both sides and so it just it, it, it never really was a, a strange you know thing it was join the military yeah so what was it like growing up in bolivia <laughs> uh it was it was very interesting i mean of course um being a, a diplomat um yeah i was down in the jungles at the age of 15 uh which i have no idea why my father decided to bring me down on missions, eradicating Coke and opium in the fields of <laughs> Bolivia. Um, but I absolutely did. I absolutely did. I eradicated uh, one of our first uh, Coca labs when I was 15 years old, uh, running from narcos at 16 years old. It was never boring. It was very interesting. 
So um, when you were down in Bolivia, was that with your, you said your mom's Bolivian. So were you living um, pretty much the life of a regular Bolivian child? Uh, I mean, it's certainly because we were U.S. diplomats, um, we were going to American cooperative schools. Uh, most of all of my friends were, their parents were also in the government as a part of the U.S. Embassy. Um, but, you know, I had many, many Bolivian friends. Uh, one first love of my life was a beautiful Bolivian girl, you know, and so, I mean, you know, uh, it was... Uh, it was an incredible experience. So I know Brazil is uh, Portuguese. So is Bolivia Spanish or Portuguese? Spanish, yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Castilian. So were they uh, happy that you guys were down there as far as the American yeah, I mean, influence? Sure. I, I, I don't, there wasn't really any, aside from the fact of what my parents were doing, uh, I mean, of course, uh, the, the narcos were not happy. Well, they never are. <laughs> <laughs> They're not happy that my father was there. Um, but no, no, there really, there really wasn't any, uh, any anger or anything towards uh, Americans, um, at least that I saw. Oh, okay. So when you came back up here to Austin, how many times have, had you been... Um, over long periods of time in the States? I would say that the maximum amount of time uh, before was maybe two years. Okay. During that time. Mm -hmm. So how was the adjustment period back to, I guess you could say your homeland that you sure. barely yeah. knew? Yeah, it was, it was very interesting. Um, I mean, of course, you know, as you know, going in the military as, as a teenager is, as a shock in itself. And so I don't really think there was that much even time for adjustment. It was more getting adjusted into military life. Right. And how, which is of course its own culture, its own identity. Right. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, you know, at 19 saying welcome. <laughs> so what year was that then? Uh, it was 2000. Okay. So about a year before nine 11 then. Yes. Yeah. So what was, was there an expectation by your dad that one of you, either yourself or your brother would go in or was there any pressure? Uh, uh, there was nothing but pride, really. It was just, they were, they were very proud because right after I joined, my sister joined and then we were both in Fort Bragg, North Carolina at the same time. Oh, okay. uh, yeah. I was in the infantry and she was in psyops and uh, yeah, you just, you just couldn't have a more, proud mom and dad right at, at the time what what's the age difference between you and your sister 18 months oh wow irish yeah. twins is that uh-huh that's it so you um you get up to austin and what was the recruiting process like back then uh very simple you know we just i uh, walked in uh just walked in uh it was a little strip mall you know one of the little strip mall recruiting places uh right by the apartment and went in and um they said great you know what do you what do you want to do and of course i had different ideas and i had different thoughts uh and then of course yeah i'm not gonna yeah i got roped in a little bit you know i got i got a little <laughs> I got a little bit of that recruitment magic uh they were like well you know 
if you sign up for Airborne, you get an additional $300 a month and you get a $6,000 signing bonus. I was like, really? I'm like, oh man, what's that? I was like, oh, you like skydiving? Like, well, I've never done that before. That sounds amazing. I'm like, oh yeah, that, that's, that's what you do. You'd be a professional skydiver. And I'm like, sign, sign me up. <laughs> when they say skydiver, they meant lawn dart. <laughs> yeah, that, uh, yeah, yeah, you like falling really fast from a very low height. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and so, uh, so signed up, and then of course maps in here in San Antonio, Texas. Went through the entire process, um, and I, I guess just a you know a couple months after that, the the ship out date uh, to uh, Fort Benning, Georgia. And, uh, you know, you arrive in Benning and got there and did the whole, that whole process. So how, how long were you in Austin before you left? I mean, probably less than a year. Oh, wow. Okay. So, um, were you physically active as a kid, uh, like organized sports? Not really. I mean, I was, I, I did enjoy, uh, I was in weightlifting when I was younger, um, I mean, yeah, soccer and, and when I was a kid, but I, I mean, I wouldn't never have called myself an athlete. Uh, like, when I, not a varsity football player. No, no, I was, I was the complete opposite. I was a theater nerd. Now that I was, I was a theater junkie. I was in every play. I, I competed, uh, nationally and internationally in all of the different, uh, monologues and improv competitions and all that stuff when I was a kid that I, that I did do. Okay. That's kind of cool though. It's just, it's, it's interesting always finding out that people have that background versus the athletic background who go into the military. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, the good thing about uncle Sam is, is that, uh, you know, he'll make sure he'll, He'll do the job right. Yeah. Well, I mean, and it's hilarious, but uh, people don't think of military guys as creatives. But in every single unit I've been in, we have had an excellent artist, someone who can do the logo for the unit, for the platoon. Right. Uh, tattoo guys, uh-huh. you know, the whole nine yards. Sure. The military is full of creatives. And hopefully yeah. as, as we talk about this, we can talk about how you're evolution from soldier to director and writer and creator came yeah um so getting to fort bragg or was it benning or bragg benning well benning for the training right oh shoot right so how was uh, how was getting off the bus for you okay you just it's it's culture shock right it's culture shock it you know fort benning home of the infantry and uh you, you know you're terrified no idea what's going on and uh you know the next thing you know you're getting your head shaved and you're getting your you're sized up for your uniform and sized up for your you know getting your pts handed to you and uh yeah so did you get any indication from your dad? I mean, being former special forces, ranger type guy, mm-hmm. did, was any of that discipline instilled at home? I, I mean, it's, it's interesting because I think that uh, a lot 
uh, with you know trying to keep your work life and your home life as separate as possible. I mean, a lot of it would spill over, but there's just no right. There's it's just night and day. Like the difference between actually, yes, my father was a drill sergeant between actually standing in front of a drill sergeant and realizing that you've signed a contract. Yeah. You, that's you, a, you have volunteered. You are here willingly. Nobody forced you to come here. You're here. Welcome. <laughs> Whereas it's my, it's your father, right? It's your father. So uh, I'm going to be defiant and I'm going to not listen to you and I'm going to walk away. That's not the case in this situation. That's a good point. Um, I, I always picture people who are kids of drill sergeants going into the military, having it a little bit easier because they kind of have an indication, but you're right. Yeah. Uh, different being on the front end of the receiving knife hands and shark <laughs> attacks. Uh-huh. Yeah. So um, as you're going through this, what are you thinking as far as, Hey, I'm here now. This is culture shock. Um what the hell did I sign up for? Or were you like, okay, we're just going to get through this. I, you know, uh, the, the best advice that my father gave me was make sure they don't know your name. That's, that's what the, that was the best advice that he gave me. And so really it was just keep my head down, do everything they say, try to do the best that I possibly can. And that, I mean, that was really during infantry school, during airborne school uh, was, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just moving through. I'm just moving through. I'm passing through. Don't mind me. <laughs> so three of the last four guests I've had on have uh, two of them have been basic military instructors. Uh, one was an army uh, DI. She just got out like two years ago, ended her career. Um, another one uh, who will come out right before you do. So this weekend, he is a Royal Navy drill instructor uh, for their boot camp. Wow. And hearing the difference between the two forces is pretty interesting, but I got to ask. So the yelling yeah. and screaming, apparently it's changed in both sides, more mentoring, more that. Um, now that, that still was not. Yeah. None of that shit. So I was there. So my buddy, Peter, <laughs> who, who was on a couple of weeks smoked. ago, he, uh, Australian army, they did, they didn't fly to their, um, to their location from Sydney. They drove eight hours on the bus. Sure. And it started the minute they got on the bus. Yeah. So how was your uh, introduction to immediate military discipline? Yeah, it was immediately smoking. Immediate, immediate smoking. Uh, and so, you know, you, as soon as you showed up, it was uh, uh, going through to complete, to get you to complete muscle fatigue. Right. And so then you're, you're just laying there <laughs> um, to show you very quickly that this is this is it. This is going to be your life. Right. And you're going to listen uh, and you're going to learn. And you're going to train and we are going to. Uh, but another thing that, of course, was always great about the military, which I hold to this day, which is they would put you up against all of these tasks that were so difficult and, and, and very difficult, both physically and emotionally. And of course you're hating every second of it, 
all the way through. But then once you accomplish it and you turn around, you just feel nothing but, but pride yeah. in what you've just been able to accomplish. So I got to ask, as far as the yeah. living condition, so I think it's, I, in fact, I know it's universal in every boot camp. You're in a squat yeah. bay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, how, how was that? I never really asked anyone that before, but how was that going from probably, you know, maybe sharing a room with your brother or having your own room your entire life? Yeah, my own room, everything, yeah. To now you get a look at 68 nasty people every day. Yeah, I remember that was, I mean, that was a real terrifying thing because, uh, you know, towing the line, right, every morning, I would get so terrified that I would wake up hours before and just tow the line in my sleep. So I didn't miss it. <laughs> <Damn>. <laughs> yeah. Cause I mean, there's so much about the military in those first few days that are so alien to people. Uh, I know from Navy boot camp, there were no um, stalls. There was toilets. Mm-hmm just open right. toilets uh yeah yeah the, the shower bays right yeah and it's something yeah. that we take for granted you go to the bathroom in public you go into a stall you shut the door and no oh, now you're there with like uh you know 30 dudes <laughs> yes <laughs> so was that a call was that part shocking to you the... oh yeah absolutely 100 uh, you know the, the the entire regiment of um that type of schedule uh was just it was wild. So now moving on, I always have to ask, um, there's a phase in boot camp when you go into a little building that's filled with gas. Oh yeah. The CS gas chamber. How was that for you? Uh, you know, I mean, I'm sure everyone's got their, got, got their tails. Right. But of course they were having us do, you know, rigorous PT exercises in the CS chamber. Uh, they're having us sing, uh, you know, a dozen different military songs at the top, doing cadence at the top of our lungs, um, you know. And then, of course, you finally get out and you just got snot and tears. Just, just some guys are throwing up in the chamber, right? All that goodness. Um, I mean, I think I, I, I pretty much the normal snot, tears. Just come, just coming out while I'm like, oh, 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 oh. <laughs> did did anyone try to bolt that you remember? Uh, not in my chamber. No, I mean I, I'd seen some people bolt out of the chamber before, um, but not not uh, not not in my not in my unit. Yeah. So so then the day then the day comes uh, the graduation day. Did your parents come mm-hmm. up for that? Uh, uh, yes, yes, yes. Uh, parents were there. Grandparents. Uh, yeah, my, my daughter, my baby daughter who is, who had just been born. Um, yeah, I mean, everyone's there and, you know, I've got the, got the dress blues on and the whole nine yards. It was, uh, it was great. Was there a lot of pride from your, from your dad? Very your much. Grandparents. Yeah. It was just, it was great. Third, you know, third generation. Right. Yeah. It was That's... an incredible moment. Yeah. And of course they're all, and they're all dressed. Oh, did so they come in their uniform? They came in their uniforms. Oh, nice. So yeah, three generations, all, you know, it's ready to go. So what time of the year was it when you graduated? Well, when I did from infantry school, it was probably, 
I want to say May, like May, June timeframe. Oh, uh, 2020. Mm-hmm. Or I mean, of 20 of 2000. Yeah. And then of course, right after that, straight on to airborne school. So how, how was that experience for you? It was a lot better. Uh, you know, <laughs> it was a lot better. Uh, I, I really did enjoy airborne school because with airborne school, you're not just there with other complete newbies. There are captains and lieutenants and sergeants and other people from other militaries. And so it's very different than what it was just, you're, you're just another private. So, um, so of course the, the Sergeant Airborne's were very different in handling, you know, of us because we were, it was such a wide and there was women, which is another thing that I was, I hadn't, you know, <laughs> it had been yeah, a while. I'd, I'd seen it. It's been a while. And I was like, "Oh my goodness, women soldiers!" Um, and of course, uh, I got like one of my best friends, Kim Shoemaker, uh, who I met there. Uh, she was a uh, eighty-eight Mike. Uh, she was. Uh, she drove. She, she she would end up driving uh, into combat missions for the Rangers. Oh wow! One of the toughest soldiers I'd ever met. And uh, who became friends there. And then we both found out that we're getting stationed in Fort Bragg, North Carolina. But Air, Airborne School was, was great. It was a really great time. Um, yeah, great leadership, great, uh, great teams, great people. So I, I think even back then it was, what, three weeks, give or take? No, we're frozen again, I think. I can, I can hear you, though. So, okay, there you <laughs> okay. Go. you're back. So it was, what, uh, three weeks back then? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think so. So um, how was your first jump? You know, it was. Or do you remember it? <laughs> I, yeah, no, I, I do. I do. I do remember. I remember. Uh, well, you, you know, you go through the PLFs. Uh, the parachute so, landing falls. Parachute landing falls. Uh, and uh, and then there you are. You stand up, hook up, shuffle to the door. Right? Just, just, just like the song goes. And you're just staring at that light, right? You're just staring at that light when it's going from red to green. Uh, then you get your jump master and it's green light, go, green light, go, green light, go. And of course, they've always talked about the jump refusal, right? And it's like the jump master is going to ask, he's going to say to you three times. And then if not, he's going to sit you down and then you're a jump refusal and then just get ready. <laughs> because <laughs> once again we didn't ask you to come here <laughs> we didn't ask you to come here um and i remember just thinking i'm not i'm not refusing i'm going to go right through i'm going to do everything that they taught me i'm just going to go right through and then it's green light go and you just walk off <laughs> were you at it were you up front or were you kind of in the back with the Dude, whole? I think I was in the middle. I think I was like in the middle at the time. And um, I remember just, just this rush of, because uh, everything is so loud and everything is so, so chaotic. And then you're finally out. And then like there's this moment of tranquility, this moment of peace uh, where you're just kind of floating through the air. 
And then of course you shoot, you feel it. Right? And then, and then you're just hoping that you don't, you're not falling on anybody or breaking anything. <laughs> like, ah, and then of course, you know, hit and uh, yeah, it was great. I was like, let's, let's do it again. So after, uh, after airborne and after the, what was it? Five jumps you guys did. Mm-hmm. You show up to uh, your first unit. Yeah. Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Yeah. How was that checking in for the first time? Yeah, 82nd Airborne Division. Well, I mean, and that's and that's where the that's where the real training starts, right? That's when the real relationships and, and everything else begin. Because you know, you'll you start meeting your leadership that you'll know for a very long time. Um, but it, it was it was it was great. You know, I once again I was I think I have been very fortunate uh, to always be with great leadership um, and, and to always have great leadership uh, that, um, you know, just been able to, to, to guide me and, and teach me and kind of show me what it is to actually be a leader. Um, because, you know, unfortunately, there's a lot of bad leaders out there. Yeah. Uh, I, <laughs> and I've seen and I've seen them. And uh, I always, you know, I feel sorry for the soldiers that are getting taught these different ways by just awful leaders. And I'm like, oh, man, uh, not the case. And of course, you know, Fort Bragg in the 82nd, uh, just some of the greatest leaders on the planet. So did you go through a little, um, I don't want to say ritual, but a little bit of hazing as in sure. your- yeah of course right you, know, you get smoked right everyone that's just how it's just how it works it's just how it is um yeah i don't i can't even remember what they were there was no there's no cards or anything that yeah. you get to- <laughs> it, it just happens so what was what was your guys's day-to-day routine pre-9-11 uh, you know, I mean, I mean, you know, infantrymen are known as the janitors of the military, you know, and especially when you're a private, uh, you're going on details every day, right? I mean, you're, you're going to go chop wood or turn rocks. Um, and then of course, when you're, cause of course you have your cycles and then when you're gearing up to about to go out into the field then you'll start getting some more training going on. Uh, and then of course your field time cycle, which is right for like three months, you're just out in the woods, right? You're just living in the, in the trees um, and just going on marches after marches, missions after missions uh, and, and just going through training uh, on everything. So then that day happens. Uh, I think it was a Tuesday. I don't know what you guys were doing. Oh, but, I, I, of course. Yeah. yeah. But, um, I'm assuming you guys were, it was a duty day for you. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I'll, I'll never, I mean, yeah. So I, I show, you know, of course, PT is at uh, 6 a.m., right? So of course we do the PT and uh, shower up, uh, walking over to uh, my buddy's uh, room, uh, Sergeant uh, Zulov. And I remember him saying, uh, you're not going to, he's like, Have you, can, can you believe this? And I walk in and I see the plane in the tower and i remember the first thing i thought was how are they going to put that out that's the first thing that i thought how are they going to put that fire out and while we're watching 
the second plane hits. And then our squad leader comes in and says, I need you to collect all the cell phones, all pagers, put them all in this bag. Go to all of your soldiers and collect everything. And then we do that. And the platoon surgeon then brings us in. And he says, I need everyone going down to the arms room right now. And then we all go down to the arms room. And of course, the first time in history at that time, they started giving us live ammunition in the arms room on like a Tuesday morning. And I'm like, this is, this is not good. This, <laughs> yeah. this is not good. And then we immediately then walked out, got in Humvees, and they started shipping us to different points through Fort Bragg. And I got uh, a task to be a part of a watch uh, group on um, some of our uh, water tanks. But people were going, you know, I mean, it was just getting fortified immediately. As soon as that happened, the entire Fort Bragg was fortified within probably 30 minutes. So like you were setting up checkpoints in hard and hard locations. Mm -hmm. How long did that last? <sighs> Weeks for weeks and and no one could say anything because they took off our phones oh that's crazy and so it was yeah it was a wild time yeah and then of course uh you know right after that uh soon after that um i mean they told us they said you know get ready because we're going how quick did they tell you it was a did they give you any details of what had actually happened not really, not really at the time. I just, I mean, we just all assumed because, well, for those that had watched, but there were some that weren't watching TV. They're, they're just getting out of the shower. Damn. <laughs> and, then, and the next thing is get on, get in this Humvee and let's <laughs> take, your, take your rifle and get in this Humvee. And now you're living on this area. Yeah. Now you're going to, you're going to go watch, uh, you know, C-130s for three weeks. Oh, so you guys didn't come back to your base or back to your barracks for a while? So. No, 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 no. We were like living at these checkpoint areas that we that they assigned us to do. Damn. So, what happened after that? Then, uh, after that, uh, training just went skyrocket. Uh, we all knew that it was it was coming, um, and uh, then um, I want to say it was gosh. It, March, February, March of the, the following. I mean, the wave started going out and we were, I can't remember which wave we were, but we were, it was March, 2001. Um, that we, we all got on a plane and went. Oh, you mean, uh, yeah, 2002? Yeah, yeah, 2002, yeah. So did you guys go directly over to Afghanistan? Yeah. So what was that part of your uh, time in service like? Get, getting the word and how did you, well, I guess I should back up a little bit. So after 9-11, when you finally did make contact with family, mm -hmm. how did that conversation go with your dad specifically? Uh, you, I mean, you could tell he was, he was scared uh for me but my father had also he'd served in iraq so he was operation desert storm now i'm operation enduring freedom uh, of course my mother terrified everything else because they know um because at the time i just gotten promoted to sergeant so i just got promoted to be a team leader 
Um, and I was uh, alpha team leader, not Bravo team leader. And so I was the first guy to walk through anything. <laughs> and of course, the, the final line was, is that I would always tell my men, I'm like, look, guys, if you see me blow up, stop. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. Just stop. Because yeah. don't just don't do it. Uh, and so you know, we, um, and so they knew, they knew that I was going to be leading men into combat and, you know, I mean, and Angelica, my daughter at the time was still, you know, just a little thing, two years old, you know, so she didn't really understand what was going on. Um, but, uh, but then, yeah, let's get on the plane. So you flew over, um, did you guys, so in 2002, did you have a, uh, a stopover? Like, uh, I think they go through what Kazakhstan now, Germany. Well, so we went through, so we for Bragg, Germany. Uh, and then we were in Germany for, I think a few hours and then onto another plane and then stopping off at like, yeah, exactly that. It was, uh, Kyrgyzstan or Kazakhstan or somewhere like Kazakhstan, that. Kazakhstan. Yeah. And then into Afghanistan to Kandahar. So let's talk about that. How was that flight into Kandahar? Because that's when it gets real when you. Yeah, I mean, you know, you just, you never, you know, they talk about it. Uh, They talk about the heat and, you know, but there's just no, there's no comparison to it. And, you know, I I lived here in San Antonio for 16 years and there's just no, uh, there's no comparison to when the I think you froze. So we're having a little bit of technical difficulty here. Uh, hopefully Carrie gets his connection back up. Okay, it looks like, a, okay, there he is, you're back. Uh, unmute yourself. All right. How's that? All right. We're back. Uh, yeah. You know, I just, uh, so yeah, nothing expects you getting hit by the desert heat. And then, um, and we, and we had guys dropping immediately. Oh, uh, from dehydration or heat. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. They just could not. And luckily I'm, yeah. <sighs> I, I I got, I got Texas blood in me. <laughs> san antonio blood in me but yeah some of these poor guys it's just you just can't they can out with the gear and everything else they just just drop in um and then uh i mean immediately once we were there uh getting your marching orders and um going out well 2002 IEDs were not a thing. So you, you were fortunate there. Mm. Um, but were, were you guys hard based out of a uh, Kandahar? Or did you start going and filling out fobs real oh, quick? Oh yeah. Very quickly. Very quickly. I mean, I, you know, the, the base of operation Kandahar, but we would go uh, all throughout uh, in just in, in support, uh, in support uh, outposts all throughout Afghanistan. 
Um, and so it was very rare. I mean, we, we showed up and then got on Blackhawks, got on Chinooks and off to wherever they needed us. But no parachutes. No parachutes. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. So all that training to, and you fly on helicopters. So you, um, <laughs> you start moving out. Um, what was your first mission like? In terms of for you, first mission, sure. No, first mission. Once again, uh, it was we were we were supporting the Canadian Special Forces. Uh, they had identified a warlord target, and we were going to set up a perimeter uh, for them for their extraction. And I was uh, going to lead my team uh, to a perimeter point. Uh, for support. And so we got loaded up on Chinooks and on Blackhawks and went out and uh, they dropped us out into these fields. And I'll never forget the, the Intel at the time on the satellite had shown these, um, these humps that was in the terrain and military intelligence had determined that these were from uh, farming equipment, right? And that it shouldn't be a problem, but just to be aware of it. And of course, this is at one o'clock in the morning. And we arrive and we immediately depart. And when we jump out, they are not humps. They are giant trenches that go like this. Oh God. That are filled that are filled with water. <laughs> so, so you did an amphibious operation, <laughs> is what you're saying. <laughs> so I have my coordinates. I know where I'm going, but we're literally crawling through these trenches and just, just soaked to the bone, covered. The military intelligence my ass all right so, <laughs> hey you're, you're the one you're the one with the sister who's in psyops <laughs> but uh, luckily luckily we uh we, we, we get uh, get to the point and uh, we set up a perimeter um and um yeah i mean we and that's so we once we set up the perimeter we were just uh uh, observing, uh, making sure, uh, you know, nobody was, uh, was, was breaching. Um, but during the whole thing, you know, your, your heart is racing. Everything is, you, you want to make sure that, uh, cause everybody's following you. Oh, that's true. You are the brand new leader. I was the point man. So everybody is following me. So everything, everything is determined that I know where I'm going. And then everybody else then can fall in line and set up the proper perimeter because everyone's watching this guy who's falling in crevices. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. Uh, and no, the mission went, the mission was successful. Um, we set up our perimeter points. Uh, they came in, they got their targets, they extracted him. 
we then collapsed back uh, onto Blackhawks and got the hell out of there. And mission success, no, no issues except for that, that we were all drenched. <laughs> <laughs> so during your time over there, did you uh, interact with the, the local population? Uh, I mean, you know, it, you would have your, you would have some uh, uh, vendors and things of that nature that would come in to, to sell trinkets and, and things of that nature. Um, but whenever we were in missions on going through the villages and things of that nature, it was very hands-off, right? Uh, I mean, we were just making sure. But when we were going in, we were going in with such a force, um, company size uh, elements that it really was just making sure that keeping the peace, you know, and, and, and really trying to ensure that um, as well, while looking for designated targets um, throughout. I was, I was going to get to, I mean, again, 2002, completely different world than 2010, 2020. Mm -hmm. If they were happy to see you guys versus probably now they're just probably sick of seeing us i'm sure uh i mean i'm sure that it was a very I, I mean i couldn't imagine uh on just opening your door and just seeing 200 infantrymen walking around i mean i think that that if you've never seen it before and if you've never been used to that before i'm, I'm sure it was a very shocking yeah view. definitely in full battle gear Right. I mean, yeah. Yeah. So if you're willing to talk about it, do you remember your first contact? Uh, I mean, yeah, we were there uh, just doing a premier uh, mission and uh, going in, uh, receiving fire. Um, it, it all happened very, very quickly uh returning fire um but luckily you know i don't have any wood or anything around me but you know nobody was uh nobody was hurt at that time um and uh angry uh, you know angry villager you know i mean i don't think that it really was uh a terrorist threat i think it was more of kind of that you know opposition of Having, not not enjoying 200 infantrymen hanging out in your town um but very fortunate uh it, yeah it was i mean the the other times i mean i think we did receive uh some fire on our base which once again we would then just immediately respond um setting up perimeters and then just returning fire but a lot of times it, it wasn't uh, it, it it wasn't just kind of a you know full on uh, battle um, you know between large forces or everything else. Right. So it, it doesn't sound like it was coordinated as much as it was no, pot shots. Yeah. It, it, yes. Very much so. And then other times they would set explosives on timers. Um, and so they would be long gone before before you guys could do anything yeah, exactly so you know we we'd get hit we'd return fire we'd move in 
but then there's nothing there. Yeah. So on that deployment, uh, did you have, did your team make it back all in one piece? Yes. Yes. Very, very fortunate. So that we absolutely did. Yes. So how was your regression back to the States for you? I, uh, you know, I mean, I, cause there wasn't, I think that's, you know, and certainly they have made up for it. Uh, I don't know if they forgot that that should be a thing on actually a transition period. Um, I think everything was so fast that they, they kind of forgot. And so they just dropped us right back in and everyone went a little crazy. You mean right back into Fort Bragg? Yeah. Society. Right. Yeah. <laughs> After living in a hole for a year. So how, how old are you now? You're like 22, maybe. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. 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 And yeah. I'm assuming you didn't spend a lot of money um, in Afghanistan. Right. Yeah. So you and your team come back with a wad full of cash. <laughs> and just amps. <laughs> you're, you're war heroes now, as far as you're, as uh, far as everyone's uh, concerned. Just amped. So did you lose your mind? Yeah, there was a lot of naked running through the streets, drunkenness, fights, crying, screaming. Yeah, I mean, you know, I just all throughout, all, all throughout <laughs> Fayetteville, North Carolina, cover up <laughs> 80 seconds coming down on you. So um once you got that, at some point in time, I'm assuming you took some uh, post-deployment leave. Mm-hmm. Um, and I keep going back to your dad because of his military service. Sure. So did you have a conversation with your dad or your grandpa or any of the other well, members see, of I mean, family? It, yeah, as soon as I got back uh, and, and went to go visit, uh, you know, my, my, my parents came to, to see me, grandparents came to see me, and... Um, you know, it was just, uh, it was, it was, it was great to be able to talk, uh, you know, with my father, with my grandfather, because they completely understood on what you're going through and uh, all the adjustments and everything else that's happening at that time and allowing me to go a bit crazy and to go fit nuts and explain to other people that it's okay. Like it's, it's all right. We don't need to lock them up in a padded cell or anything. <laughs> so did you, did you feel like you came home different? I, I mean, it's, it, it's certainly, I mean, at that time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that suffering from PTSD within any experience, um, the dreams or rights, the, the waking up and you're, you're doing weird physical activities in the middle of the night and not understanding why. Um, but I think that just identifying it and, and realizing why that's happening. Um, I think that once I was able to do that, then it's like, okay. So what happened after you guys got back then? You you obviously do your post deployment leave. You guys lose your mind. Mm-hmm. I'd like to say for a little bit, 
but I think Fort yeah. Bragg kind of has a history of not self-correcting. Um, and I think, <laughs> <You> I, <know? laughs> I think a lot of that may have moved over to Fort Hood now. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, it, it just, it went back to, uh, just regular training. Um, yeah, we just, you know, just going back to regular training, going back to, uh, everything else. And then of course, gearing up for the second deployment. So at um, this time, Iraq was on the uh, radar. And so now everyone's gearing up uh, to go into another deployment phase. And so more training, more mount training. Uh, I mean, and that really was kind of the start of it. Because now it's, it's just a cycle. Yeah. Right. Um, but during that time, it had been years since that was a thing where you would get deployed and you know, you're, no, you're going overseas immediately. So um, as you're going through your next workup, was it planning for Afghanistan again or was Iraq back on the green? Were you guys yeah. looking at going down Iraq both, way? Yeah, both, both Iraq and Afghanistan. So as a, uh, as a sergeant, as someone who now done one combat deployment, against a insurgency force mm-hmm. you're looking at iraq which i'm pretty sure even being as young as you were at the time you knew that was a standing army yeah did that change the way you guys uh looked at what you were doing from I mean, your think, perspective yeah i mean i think that we certainly were really amping our urban warfare combat training and um and, and just learning what we what we did learn from Afghanistan uh, within our, within our training, within our task of training. So you guys get the call to go. Um, where'd you guys end up going to, or where'd you start from? Uh, yeah. So I'm not, I, cause right before that I transitioned out. Oh, okay. So so I can't remember exactly where where they actually went. I trained up right before that, but then after that, I transitioned out. Um, but I'm, I wasn't much sure. I'm not sure so, they went to in Iraq. So let's talk about that. What was your what was your decision yeah. to to leave? Um, you know i i was I had been going to I'd been going to night school, and I had almost completed three years of college by that time. I really wanted to finish my degree. Uh, at the time I was supposed to then join the state department and kind of uh, follow in the footsteps of my parents and work for the state department or for the U S embassy. And I was very excited to start that next chapter. And so it was that decision on what, you know, what should I do? And I was like, I really, this, I really want to start this next, this next chapter of my life. And I feel that I am very prepared to, to start this. Um, and so that was kind of the, the ultimate decision. So as you get out, um, what were you studying? Political science. Okay. Which would make sense for the state department. Mm-hmm. So was that something you thought, okay, I got my four years in, now I'm going to go do State Department for the next 20, 25 years, 
did you see a future as far as working your way up to maybe a uh, career diplomat ambassador type thing? Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That was, that was really kind of the, the plan. Um, I mean, certainly being, you know, a chief department head in whether or not it was going to be the DEA or the narcotics affairs section, um, it was going career all the way. So what changed? Uh, this, this stupid movie business. <laughs> Let, let's go into that. Um, I know right behind you, you have a poster uh-huh. framed of, was that your very first movie or? Yeah, Harrison, yeah. For, was... First feature movie. Yeah. But was it the yeah. first one that you had done outside the military? Yes. Yeah. I mean, that was, that was what started it all. Cause I was finishing my master's degree here in San Antonio at UTSA. And, um, and the, the one night I, I don't know, I, I couldn't sleep. I was having difficulty. I was still going through things. And I wrote this short story about, you know, a soldier that comes home and finds his wife being unfaithful and murders her and, murders the guy and puts him in a burn pit and sets him on fire you know and uh and that was kind of the first that was what started that was what started garrison which then you know turned into a a whole thing so what year was that uh so that was so now we're talking like 2005 okay so ironically at that same time i know the army uh actually probably closer to 2007-8 the army was having a lot of problems with mm-hmm. stuff very similar to what you had talked about. Did mm-hmm. you see anything like that while you were in um, not just the unfaithfulness, but domestic violence, things like that? That Yeah. I mean, in, I mean, the Fort Bragg murders uh, of 2002 and 2003 was, it was a you know, very serious thing um, because soldiers were coming back and they were killing their wives left and right. And it was not good because there was, there was no oversight on these guys and the commands, which unfortunately at the time, they did not want to know about your problems, right? Do not tell me your problems, do your job. Right. And not realizing that there was serious problems going on with these guys. And so them not feeling that they have anywhere to turn to. Yeah, it just it, it just resulted in a, a very horrific uh, set of circumstances where I think that I mean there was like almost a dozen murders that just happened. Was there you really know, that many? It was it was awful. Wow. Okay. I didn't I, I knew the about the I think it was the big the big one or two that made the news. I didn't know there was that many others. Yes. And there was a lot that did not go exactly. There was a lot that didn't go in the news and that weren't reported because then you're just talking about soldiers killing soldiers every other day. Damn. And so I take it outside of murders, there was probably a ton of uh, domestic violence issues, like you said, fights. Um, (laughs) Do you know how they rectified that? I mean, that's where the, you know, they, they started developing the warrior transition units uh, to be able to really start watching soldiers, really start offering counseling services uh, and, and giving options to like 
where soldiers can actually go and talk to people about things that they are dealing with other than just shove it down deep and <laughs> hope you don't explode. So as a team leader, uh, while you were still in, did you mm -hmm. feel like you had an outlet to actually help these guys? I mean, I tried uh, the best that I could. Um, but once again, an infantry sergeant is not equipped to handle, nor should he. Right. Uh, be, and I'm tw 22 at the time. You're not, you shouldn't be giving advice to anybody. They need <laughs> that, to go that's see valid. Yeah. They need to go see a professional doctor, psychiatrist, counselor who has their degree in, in this. Um, and, and I think that was the, that was another issue is that there wasn't that option. There wasn't saying, Oh, Hey, you can go over here and talk to this person. And that didn't exist. Right. So as a, uh, as a team sergeant and, you know, a platoon member, mm -hmm. I want your thoughts on how, how are your medics in terms of being able to obviously not offer counseling, but to get those guys to either the, the MO, the doctor or to the base shrink. Yeah, was that even I mean, a thing that they were looking it, at? No, no. I mean, our, I mean, our medics were, were great at putting us back together again, right? <laughs> and more than likely, I'm, I'm, I'll also make the assumption that they were probably in the same issues as you guys were. Absolutely. I mean, they were great at they were great in their field, and they they knew their their you know their field to the T, and. Uh, everybody's work ethic was very strong. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I don't know. How many, I don't know how many Marines I know that uh, showed up to PT still drunk and were able to complete a uh, full work day with no one. Easy, even know easy, easy. Which is probably saying something about the culture that we grew up in. <laughs> well, that was the, the, the whole joke, right. On, uh, on, you know, the 82nd airborne, which is the all Americans. And of course the big joke was the AA sensory alcoholic anonymous. Um, but yeah, you know, you'd always just keep a spare set of PTs in the trunk of your car because you never know where the night was going to take you. So do you think that, um, so there's a guy I listened to the cleared hot podcast. Um, he's a former seal and he talks about everything involved in the teams, whether it's your first jump, your first dive, it's a case of beer. And I know with the Marines, there was several times where it was similar to that. Maybe not a case of beer, but you know, shots or something yeah. was alcohol, um, a big thing with you guys. Well, sure. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I mean, I don't want to say that, uh, you know, work hard, play hard came from the military, but it sure sounds like it did. It does, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying that it was coined by the military, but it sure sounds like it did because that was, that was our whole mantra, right? I mean, we are going to blood, sweat, and tears on every mission, on every training exercise, and then we're going to go get blitzed out of our minds yeah that's what we're doing very very common so <laughs> jumping back to garrison yeah I, i'm not saying that you were thinking well ahead but do you think um part of the story was a healing process for you i think so i you know i, I think that uh that having to to come to terms um with 
my own demons, you know, in a way, um, certainly through the character of Cross, you know, who goes AWOL and is suffering from depression and anger and pain uh, was very much a reflection of a lot that I was going through um, versus then you have his, his soldier who is trying to find him. He's trying to help him um, and, and kind of just creating that, that character that uh, you, we all want, you know what I mean? The, you know, the character, the, the, the good guy inside of us, you know, that's like, it's going to be okay. You're going to get through this. Yeah. We're going to get together. Yeah. So as you're, uh, as you're writing this, what do you think you're going to do with it? Yeah. At, at the time, nothing really. I, I, I was, I was working on it. It was, it was very therapeutic for me. I uh, come up with funny ideas and funny scenes and hazing scene. I'm like, Oh yeah, that used to happen to us all the time. Let me write that down. That's hilarious. Or, Oh yeah, they should do this because that's what used to happen to us. And of course, and it goes back to writing what, you know, and it, it just, it's all I knew at the time. I'm like, Oh yeah, oh, this is, people would love to see this, right? People would love to see this part and that part. Uh, and then the next thing I know, I think I had probably, you know, 40, 50 pages uh, of, a, of a somewhat look like a script. Um, and then I had recently done a short film in San Antonio and I met an actress, uh, her name was Elizabeth Ingalls. And I remember she called me up and she was like, what are you doing? And I'm like, oh, I'm, just, I'm working on this, this stupid script. And she's like, you wrote a script? I'm coming over right now to read it. So she, she comes over and she grabs the script. She reads it and uh, she's like, we should make this. And I'm like, well, sure. But how do you do that? <laughs> like, I don't so, know. <laughs> so were you acting in the uh, short film or were you? Yeah, yeah. I was, uh, so okay. me and, yeah, we'd done a, we'd done a short film together. I got casted. It was a little. Uh, just a you know, little five minute uh, short piece that, that we'd done. And, but this is while I was still in grad school at UTSA. So I was still very much on my path to, to doing, I, I just still had a huge love of theater and a huge love of passion of acting and, and the entertainments and the arts and things of that nature. So I was still kind of plugging away uh, at, my passion at the time my hobby at the time right which it was my hobby like side painting or something yeah. did, did that come out in the military that you were a uh, theater boy no no really that kind of uh it, it, it really did get that was that it went on pause it went on pause but the minute that i got out and i and i kind of got back into society i i started remembering that i had this huge love of this when I was a child and middle school, high school, I would always, I was in all the plays and I was doing all the things. And then I just kind of buried that whole thing while I was in the infantry. So I know this sounds weird, but there's a, there, and I think people know that there's a, a distinct distinction between theater and film. Mm -hmm. Did you ever 
consider going back to theater, like live theater versus getting into film? Yeah, I mean, so I mean, when I first got back here, it was uh, I, I was in the theater community uh, here in San Antonio and uh, um, doing plays uh, at uh, places like the Cameo, uh, Steven Soli's Playhouse, um, and um, you know, kind of through the theater community, I connected with the film community. Oh, okay. uh, I'm and then just uh, and then started going on that that road as well i guess i guess we also didn't talk about why did you come back to san antonio not austin sure yeah, my family was here at the time and so they had they had retired uh from south america and uh they moved here uh my parents my brother oh. and they were just telling me how great san antonio was and so i had a i had a great support system which is something that i really needed um also yeah and, uh, <laughs> no i i think i think this anyone who gets out uh support yeah. systems are extremely important yeah and so uh and so yeah so i came here and um and i just yeah I, and of course i'm i'm only uh, an hour away from my daughter so i was able to go and pick her up you know every weekend and we were able to you know keep that uh perfect uh, and so, and then I, I just, yeah, I just fell in love with the city. So you're here, you're, you're writing this thing mm -hmm. with probably no direction on what's next. And then yep. your friend says, let's make this. Mm -hmm. So what did let's make this look like? Uh, so, you know, at the time we were both signed with a talent agency uh, called Condra Artista and we were saying, well, I guess we need more actors. So let's call our agent and let's uh, use all of the talent that are a part of the talent agency. And let's have auditions, I guess. Let's you know, just try to see if we can cast this thing. And that's what we did. We contacted our agent. She told us that we were crazy, um, but that she loved us. And, that's <laughs> and because she loved us, she would do this, right? but only for us, because this is nonsense. But she would send out an audition call to all the talent of Condra to come into audition for this movie, which didn't exist. And um, and we were very we were very upfront with all of our actors at the time, saying, "Look, we've never done this before, but we're trying, you know." And so we're trying to put this indie movie together. And uh, so we casted the film and then I had done another short film uh, prior to that, that had a really great team, a, a really great DP, a really great director. And I kind of went to them and said, Hey, um, we're putting this scene together. We'd love for you to be a part of the team and, and really just selling everybody on the passion of it. Uh, on the passion of the project and the importance of it. Uh, I think people really appreciated that it was addressing post-traumatic stress disorder, that it was addressing, you know, uh, this uh, very heartfelt military story. And, um, you know, kind of everybody just kind of came together and, uh, but it, nobody had made a feature film. And so everybody had only done short films in theater. And so, 
I mean, I don't think there was a person over 30 that was hanging out in the group, right? I mean, so. So let, let's uh, explain real quick. So a short film is typically what? Under how, how long? Five, five, 10 minutes. And then a feature is typically. Not, so you were, you jumped <laughs> into the goddamn deep end. <laughs> uh-huh. So you cast people, you get yourself yeah. a cinematographer. And yeah. did well, you? I, I direct. I ended up directing because that's what I was going to ask. Yeah. So he ended up because I, I wanted him to direct it because I was starring, and he goes, "You know what, Carrie? I'll let, I'll be your assistant director, right? You need to direct this thing because you know this story. You know this story, and so I'm going to help you and I'll guide you, but you're the one that's got to lead this." You got to you got to drive this ship, man. So how what was that learning curve like? Well, thankfully, because of the military, um, I just really did take it as a mission, right? I mean, I'm like, okay, I got my I got my soldiers, <laughs> got my directive. I know what I I know what I want to accomplish. I went out and I bought a whole bunch of books on directing, first time directing, indie directing, feature film directing, low budget directing. And I just, you know, started reading all the different battle plans on how to conduct this thing and uh, what equipment I needed, what elements I needed. And I went out and found it all with no money. Nice. So let's talk about the process then. Uh, yeah. for, people who, for people who are watching this, who are getting ready to get out or who have that creative streak, there are so many veterans who are doing uh, podcasts and blogs and you got people and we'll get into this in a little bit like black rifle coffee who have uh, their whole media arm who Amazing. do short films. You have grunt style, all of these veterans who are coming up showing talent. Well, you seem to have fallen into that early group of veterans mm -hmm. who started to do this Yeah, with no one to look to, to say, and, what youtube back in 2005 was cat videos yeah it was just nonsense i mean there were i mean indie filmmaking the, the mini dv just came out i mean the, the the entire idea of the prosumer camera was brand new um the digital media form was still just really unknown and hollywood didn't even really we we're just kind of laughing at it still yeah. right like if you're not shooting on film you're an idiot you're not a real filmmaker if you're not shooting on film. Right? That's why the word film is in maker. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? And so you can't call, you can't, you, you can't, if you're going out to, to Walmart buying mini DV tapes, you're not a filmmaker. And I was like, okay, well, you know, I'm going to do it anyway. Why not? Right. And that's what we did. I mean, we were using the, uh, the, the Canon XL. Um, and, uh, Get yeah, getting our getting our tapes from Walmart and running around with our uniforms and trying not to get arrested. So, did you actually go out and buy the camera, or did you borrow it? Oh uh, yeah, we just we, we borrowed it. So, speaking of uh, running around with your uniforms and not getting arrested, I know you told me yeah. a story once. Do you want to go to prison? <laughs> 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 no, um, I, I'm pretty sure the statute of limitations for trespassing has long passed. Yeah. I think <laughs> So back in uh, where you when you were here, how yeah. did you get those shots that looked like they were on base? 
I, I snuck onto base and I boarded them, threw a bag, or a gym bag with a hole in it. Seriously? <laughs> Seriously. And I actually wore my military uniform onto those sites. Oh, and walked, God. Walked, and walked and just walked over. <laughs> Did anyone have any idea what was going on or? No. No. I mean, because it. Yeah, and that's that's the other great thing about you know uh, about the pro streamer camera is that you know the, the way that we were doing it and, and the way that we were lighting it or shooting it was all very guerrilla style filmmaking regardless. So you didn't need anybody. Oh, uh, so did you ever get a close call? As far as um, almost getting we got the cops. Calls? Yeah, we got the cops called on us. Uh, we, we we went to the. There was one scene in Garrison that we wanted to uh, uh, we wanted to set up an actual military checkpoint, and so I had uh, I had actors dressed up as MPs um, with uh, airsoft M4s, and we went around to the backside of Camp Bullis to where there was a, an actual like checkpoint fence, but it was unoccupied. And we tried to set up an actual checkpoint where like the actor is going to drive through and they're going to check his ID and then they're going to wave him through a very simple setup scene. And so in order to be able to do it properly, we had to rent a generator, set up lighting. And we were probably, we're minutes away from shooting the shot when M actual MPs showed up on one side of the fence and then SAPD showed up on the other side of the fence. <laughs> and they said, what the hell are you kids doing? And we were like, what? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I mean, well, are we not supposed to be here? And they're like, no, you kids are not supposed to be here. Like, oh, we're all just college students. And we're just doing a short film for our college thesis. And we didn't know. And they're like, y'all have about five seconds to get the hell out of here. <laughs> oh god that could have i mean and especially nowadays you've i've heard of several independent filmmakers when it comes to dress up uh costuming either military cops <laughs> they have weapons on them shit goes bad real quick don't do it no i highly recommend not to do it yeah don't. um yeah I, I I yeah. wish I could give you some. I wish I could give everyone some good <laughs> advice for getting those scenes, but let the police depart. If you're actually doing this, let the police know what you are doing. Right, exactly. Like, like, and with sanitarium, that's exactly what we did. So in sanitarium, in monsters are real. There's a great scene when SAPD shows up and they're in full uniform, full weapons, everything else, and we went and actually got SAPD to come in to coordinate with us to train our actors everything yeah. is fine <laughs> everything yeah. is fine so you you managed not to get arrested on your first film yes. you managed to shoot this um without obviously going too crazy right so the next process is starting to edit and screen so you go through the edit process again like you were saying this is early days of digital filmmaking yeah um it sounds like you were shooting on the canon xl1 which is about six seven years old at the time yeah you were shooting on it i know between enlistments i was working for a creative company 
uh, in 99 and we were shooting on the same camera. Yep. And editing back then didn't change much between 99 and 2008, really. Final Cut Pro was probably the best thing out there. Yeah. Well, we actually did ours on, on Avid. We actually, we actually cut. Oh, wow. Yeah, we actually cut on Avid. So my question was going to be, how was the logging and editing process for that? Right. So I didn't understand that you actually had to do that. Um, I missed that in my research. Uh, we actually had a, a, a professor who had just retired from UT Arlington named uh, Robert Castaldo. And uh, he uh, lived in Arlington. He was a professor for one of the people that was on the movie. And she had contacted him. He was a big military supporter. And uh, she contacted him and had uh, talked about the, the project and if he would agree to look at some footage. And he did, and he really liked what he saw. He was like, I really do think that you have something here. Um, I would be willing to work a deal uh, with you to, to edit this project. And so I drove up to Arlington with a bag filled with mini DV tapes unlocked and I remember just opening the bag and him looking at me saying are, are you crazy like <laughs> give me an idea of how many tapes you had more than 20 30, 37 <laughs> <laughs> so again talking about um, the, the changes in technology since uh, you and I we're playing with the XL1. In order to get that amount of footage, if you recorded, I think they were 55 minute tapes back yes. then. Uh, yeah. You had for each tape, if it was at if it was full to 55 minutes, you had to sit there and intake 55 <laughs> minutes worth of tape. And then you had to eject it and put in the next tape. And go through every single piece. Yes. Unlike now, I I'm I'm not I'm recording this through a straight onto the uh, hard drive. But if I was recording this to the memory in the camera, yeah. it'd just be copy a file over. And that's right. it. 10 minutes later, it's over. And then I can edit it. So yeah, um, he must have hated you for that. Oh, it, it hated my guts. Hated my guts. Um, and, uh, you know, luckily, uh, we then, you know, we started the process and, and he was still actually like working on, I, beca I became his passion piece right where when he had time when he had free time um he would call me up and then i would literally just like hop in my car and drive over and then we would we'd edit uh for you know a couple days i think we lost you all right so again uh, the wonders of the internet not being able to do this face to face we sometimes lose our guests so hopefully carrie will be back here shortly but i do i sympathize with him and his editor because because god only knows how much of a pain in the ass that was oh yeah so i mean and again we'll talk uh now and then right now yeah. we're doing this through zoom um i can share a screen with you if we needed to and show you a cut that you may or may not want. But in your case, you're talking about driving from San Antonio to Arlington, which is what, four hours? Three, yeah, three and a half hours, yeah. So I'm assuming several times over several months? Yep, mm -hmm. absolutely. 
so um, one of the things, and this is both video and audio podcast, that's really important in any sort of creative uh, audio video medium is the audio. How did you guys do that? And how did you not uh, screw that up? Completely messed it up. You know, uh, our audio guy, who had also done multiple short films, uh, you know, luckily he had a, you know, he had the, he had a little kit, um, and, uh, we were able to, to really, you know, capture sound and we, we, we did it well. Uh, I mean, it was, of course, it was all on the secondary tracks. Um, but, uh, we were very fortunate. There was a lot of things that we were very, very fortunate on that we didn't realize at the time um that we like messed up on but we were able to 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 get it through like you know one of the things was is that a lot of the the interiors um of garrison we just completely desaturated the entire thing and just up the contrast and so we had no there was no need for lighting you know it was either that or it was natural light right um it was very, very rare that we actually even needed to have lighting because of how we were shooting the movie. That makes sense. So uh, at some point in time, uh, your professor friend mm-hmm. hands you a finished product, probably tells you he hates you and never wants to talk to you again. This is all true, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so what happened when you got the finished product in your hand? Uh, you know, I was, I, I was very happy with it. I was very, very happy with it. Um, but I still felt like there were things that were missing. Um, but I still was like, okay, it's fine. We're going to submit to film festivals. Did you have that in mind already? Oh, well, it's, it's what the, it's what the book told me to do. So... (laughs) So you submit to film festivals and then if you get accepted and you go to these festivals, then, you know, you're going to network and hopefully find somebody that is either a buyer or a distributor that is, or an agent of some kind to be able to help you to get you to the next step. Um, But interesting enough, uh, when I submitted Garrison version one to festivals, uh, dozens and dozens of film festivals, I, I didn't get accepted into a single one. And, um, and I, I couldn't understand what, well, no, I, I didn't, I knew that there was a problem. Obviously there's a problem with my product. So I went back and I looked at it again. I was like, okay, there are elements that we can add in that I believe that we can add in to help make it more commercially viable, more, um, distributable and so then we went and did we did reshoots a year later and so three days of reshoots went back to arlington recut the thing again resubmitted to another dozen film festivals uh and then got accepted to like 18 film festivals that year oh okay so you get accepted um Mm -hmm. Were you, did your ego get hurt when, after the first round? 
it was tough. It was really, really tough. Um, it was tough to decide if, whether or not I've made a huge uh, error, right? I, I just, I made an awful decision on deciding to drop out and destroy my career. Oh, so you uh, dropped out. Mm-hmm. To pursue this idiotic dream that is being working in the entertainment industry. And have I just destroyed my life on what I just worked for the past six years, you know, to, to build and work my ass off. And now it could all, you know, just be over. Um, and then I, I don't know. I just, I made the, uh, you know, I just thought, um, let me do the reshoots. I believe that this can fix it. I believe that this is the answer. If I'm wrong and I submit to another dozen film festivals and they all come back and say no, then I'm quitting. And then I'm gonna finish my degree, State Department, I'm still okay. Not old man yet. So, and we'll just, we'll just chalk it up to, 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 to a crazy moment in time. So was that a, was it, how was the first one? The first acceptance letter? Uh, so it was, um, it, I don't want to say I got spoiled, but I definitely got spoiled. My first acceptance letter was to the Park City uh, Film Music Festival, which took place during Sundance in 2008. Um, and um, they were they were more music centric, so they were very focused on the score. And we had this amazing composer, first feature film that he'd ever done. He's now done over 200 feature films, but he graduated from uh, uh, UT Dallas and got his degree, professional degree in musical composition. And uh, the letter came in and says, you know, you've been accepted to screen at Park City. And so our first screening happened on Main Street across from the Egyptian theater uh, while everyone else was screening like at Sundance. I mean, we were there. Our posters were right next to all the Sundance posters. We were attending all the Sundance parties with everybody else. We were just at another little, we were at a smaller festival that was literally right across the street. But Slam Dance was still going on at the same time. So Slam Dance, Park City Music Film Festival, and then Sundance. And we were going to all the same. We're going to Sundance screenings. We're going to Slam Dance screenings. We're going to Park City Music screenings. It's, it was just incredible. It's just an incredible experience. So after that, did the, did the other acceptance letters just kind of yeah, flow right in? New York, New York. Uh, it was the, the New York uh, Independent Film Festival. Hollywood uh, Independent Film Festival. Um, I mean, they're all smaller tier festivals, but uh, but it was very cool. And then when we got accepted into Hollywood, um, which I went, and we screened uh, right across from, I think it was from uh, CBS uh, in the Grove in West Hollywood. And... Uh, I'm standing outside of the theater and a gentleman walks up to me and he goes, hello, my name is Juan Vistanis. I'm an international sales agent. Uh, I just watched your movie and we'd like to send you an offer. And here's my card. And the rest is history. And, we're, we're, and then I got the offer letter 
for uh, international uh, sales purchase for $20,000 advance. How did that hit you? It's crazy. I mean, I, obviously it's not, you know, life-changing, right? Life no, but, but, it, but the, but the, um, what sort I'm looking for the going from no one wanted to touch you to here's a $20,000 advance. Yeah. Here's a check. Here's a check for $20,000. So did that, uh, how did that affect you? I was like, Oh, I guess you make money doing this. <laughs> I guess this is what I, I guess this is what I'm going to be doing now for the rest of my life. So now you, uh, you, you have sold this first movie. Mm-hmm. You, what are you doing? Cause you mentioned sanitarium, which was your next big known film. Yeah. Um, what are you doing between then and, and sanitarium, uh, san- uh, sanitarium? Why can I not? Yeah. Think? Yeah, no, sure. Um, you know, I mean, you know, I, working odd jobs, you know, just doing odd jobs. I think at one point I was uh, delivering flowers and, you know, uh, bartending. I mean, you know, you're just doing whatever you possibly can. And then uh, you know, modeling gigs, print gigs, you know, things of that nature also uh, in between. Were you working on any other projects between Garrison and San and Sanitarium? Uh, I mean, I had gotten... I got hired to do a couple indie projects and, and things of that nature, but nothing, uh, you know, no, nothing like a big studio project or anything else like that. Okay. So um, as you're going through to get to sanitarium, what was your inspiration for that? Uh, well, so we, you know, we, we made Garrison and then Garrison uh, got sold uh, to 30 countries. Uh, and then we, well, you know, we, we made money we made money and it did really well. And so now we have all the connections with sales agents, distributors, both foreign and domestic agents. And so now the, and then of course their question is, what do you want to do next? Right? So you, here it is, right? You have all the resources now. Um, what do you want to do next? And so I think we were just, talking with a group of friends and we're talking about alfred hitchcock presents we were talking about twilight zone we're talking about tales from the crypt tales from the dark side and how they don't make those movies anymore and this is 2012 or 2011 and so the anthology had been dead for decades and i remember saying you know i miss i miss that platform we should do that and so we kind of uh, got together and started talking about this concept of three short films, 30 minute segments, bringing on two other directors. And of course, uh, Brian Ortiz and Brian Ramirez, uh, who were, you know, they were good friends of mine at the time. And they were both prominent rising directors in the San Antonio film community. And we're all just kind of sitting down and talking about it and saying, you know, how do we do this? And um, the the original title of Sanitarium was Asylum. It was going to be Asylum. But at the time, there was like 100 different asylums on IMDb. So we're like, okay, well, we're going to call it that. But there was only one Sanitarium, but it wasn't in it. It it had been made in in England. 
like 50 years ago or something like that. Really? And so we were, we were like, great. So called up my entertainment lawyer, made sure that the rights were good for the title. And uh, then we just started working on the storylines and, you know, what kind of stories did we want to do and tell. Uh, and uh, of course, we're just throwing the whole kitchen sink, right? Every idea is on the table. Some of them were horrible. Uh, but then we came down to really three really good ideas. And we're like, okay, I love these three log lines. These are great. Let's, let's work on these. Uh, then Ortiz went and worked on his, which was Monsters Are Real. And then me and Crystal Bratton um, worked on, figuratively speaking, and Up to the Last Man. Uh, and then, um, uh, yeah, I mean, the rest was, uh, the rest was history. So that was another super successful one that you had. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we made, we made Sanitarium for 300,000 and then we sold it for half a million. And, uh, yeah, it was pretty great. So then, uh, what year was that that you sold it? uh 2013 and then it came out in 2014 so what did you do between um after sanitarium obviously you have some money now yeah i so i so it, and it, so at that time it was interesting because me brian Ortiz, and brian Ramirez were talking about starting like a company maybe um because we're like what should we do right well maybe we should get like an office space uh, and then we can like do commercials and we can do music videos and we can do all these other things. Um, and then started talking about, uh, production hubs and studio spaces and all of this. Uh, and then of course the result ended up being Alamo city studios, right? Which was then founded in, uh, 2015. So I did skip over a couple things with sanitarium. Yeah. So, so going from 2000, what's five, six for Garrison, um, make, making an old man cry, uh, editing to when you guys went into production at was sanitarium. Yeah. How much, I mean, the world had ch literally changed by then. Mm -hmm. How much did you see a change in your techniques and your finishing your, editing side sure i mean it was it was really great because like like our head our, our head of uh, post-production was justin malone from malone pictures uh who i had already known for years and years and years and so everybody that i was working with i had already known for over five years and so and everyone had just evolved. And so we shot everything on the Red Epic. Um, we made sure to log everything this time. That's that probably a good thing. <laughs> yeah, we had our data wrangler, you know, DIT, whole thing. Um, we were shipping everything out, uh, you know, from, from our production point to, to, to our editors who were compiling everything. It was a very smooth process. It was a very smooth process. Um, yeah, and just working with the technology that you have, 
right? That you get to show up and everything's all like your first cut's already done. Right. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Ver- versus how long did it take for your first cut? Oh, yeah. Like three months. <laughs> <laughs> so back to Alamo city studios. Cause I want to get into yeah. that with you. Um, yeah. You and I met sometime around that uh, before Alamo city studios opened mm-hmm. uh, through our mutual friend, Sarah Beth and uh, the 48 hour film fest that I yeah. had submitted something into which mm-hmm. I thought was the greatest concept in the world, but screw all you. Yeah, yeah, uh, screw it. You get those guys. Yeah, that, that jerk of a, of a judge. No. Uh-huh. Yeah. So anyways, <laughs> um, you happened to find this amazing building that had some history behind it that you got into. Yeah. What made you, how did you find that space and what made you really decide to stay in San Antonio when Austin is a, big city for film um dallas was for a little bit but what what was your reason for staying here versus going somewhere where there was more of a culture yeah um you know i mean i mean at the time i was i was working with uh the uh the ceo of alamo city comic-con and he was talking about and i was actually officing with him um and he was talking about getting a bigger space and where Alamo City Studios is, uh, is actually dubbed, legally dubbed the film district, the San Antonio Film District. And it, it got really? dubbed, yes, and it got dubbed that back in the 80s. When San Antonio was like doing the Knight Rider and, and doing all the pretty horses and eight seconds and all that good stuff. And um and so I'd known of his existence and I'd known that it was just completely deteriorated and falling apart and uh, on its last leg. And so when, when he was talking about acquiring a big building, he was talking at the time was, was talking about um, doing like a, like, a, like a furniture warehouse that was going under and just one of these big warehouses. And I said, well, you know, actually I know of a big warehouse place and my buddies and I were already talking about looking for an office space. So maybe with all of our powers combined, maybe this is the answer. And so we go over there and, uh, we get in, we go upstairs, N- not one light works. We're all with our flashlights so that way we can see things. And, and some things you probably didn't want to see. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, I just, I, I, I saw it. I, I just, I saw it. And I said, this is, this, this can work. You know, I think this can really work um, in making this a production hub here in San Antonio. Uh, and um just like with everything else in my life, right? Let's just do it and see what happens and roll the dice. And um, that was six years ago. That's crazy. It is. Yeah. And it came from a very, very small upstairs uh, office space, conference room type setup to <laughs> what it is today. Uh, you guys yeah. have what a full time full-time uh 
what I'm drawing a blank. Uh, large production going on there. Yeah, yeah. Um, yep. Then you have a well, TV, yeah, TV, yeah, TV shows and commercials, full music videos, photo shoots. Thirty companies that exist inside of the studio. Over a hundred members in total. Um, and it, and it, it just keeps growing every day. So let's jump to, I'm skipping a lot, but let's jump to 2020. Yeah. You are going in, in January, you, you and I talk a lot and there were some really big plans happening for the entire space, not just the, the, uh, the office part, but the whole building space and this little thing called COVID hit and changed a lot of plans. Yeah. How was that for you being so invested into a business that I'm not sure if it was considered essential or not? No, no. I mean, we had closed down for four months and I really did think that it was going to, to be the end. Uh, businesses were getting shut down left and right. You know, people were getting out of work left and right. And uh, I, I did not see how we were possibly going to survive. Um, but luckily we did. So what was your, what was it like opening the doors again for you? I, I mean, I, I'll never forget the first time that I went into to Walmart and I saw somebody with a mask on and it, and it was very strange to me for the first time. And of course now it was just commonplace. Um, and so having productions coming in, of course, with all the different protocols and everything now that, that has to go into it, it's a, it's, you know, it's a, it's a different world. Um, it's a very different world, but I think that at least within our industry, um, you know, the, the arts will always need a, a home. And people always will still need to create. And even though it's a pandemic, it's not going to stop people from creating no matter what. Yeah. It just, it's just not going to stop. And that was the one thing that I, you know, you always hope that that's the case. And that's the reason why Alma City Studio stayed open um, was because you're just, you're not going to, you're not going to kill that. So during the time that you opened Alamo City Studios, you've had some pretty interesting tenants, whether they mm-hmm. were long-term or short-term. Um, sure. And you've also seen some veterans come through. Uh, I yeah. can think of like Sam Lerma, who I want to get on, who Air Force guy shoots for the Air Force now a lot with uh, his I, I, business. I almost said freelance, but his business. Mm-hmm. You have me who I don't do much, but I'm trying to get back into it. Adam um, John. Adam, uh, and you've shot with military there. They brought productions in house. Yeah. Do you feel like you're able to help veterans who want to get into it? Like that, that Alamo city studios could be a, a learning hub for them. I mean, I'm certainly open to it. Um, yeah, I mean, like I said, you know, we had black rifle coffee company that <clears throat> we, we were its first home when they arrived here to San Antonio before they built their Mecca, their, yeah. their, 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 their little uh, compound, uh, before they build their, their, which is amazing. Yeah. It's incredible. Um, and so, 
we're certainly always like the door is open. Uh, the door is always open. Uh, and certainly, um, I have an open door, you know, policy on any time anybody wants to come and talk to me uh, about anything, you know, uh, come on in and let's, let's, let's talk. And, and I can try to give you as much advice as I possibly can uh, to help, you know, on that, on that path. So, yeah, I mean, absolutely. So um, before we forget, right behind me is this thing, uh, it looks like a graphic novel and it was something I, I think you were working. I think you had some say in it. Uh, what back in 2019, when people were allowed to get together and hug each other and <laughs> go have dinner in hey, restaurants girl. in LA. Yeah. Um, this is a graphic novel that you created along with your partner um, in crime for writing crystal. And got some really good guys, mutual friends of ours to help illustrate and ink and do all that. Yes. Tell us about it. Yeah. So, uh, you know, so OBE uh, or O, which stands for out of body experience. It's a, you know, it's a crime novel, uh, you know, basic premise, a series of murders are going on. Detective is on the case, right? Trying to hunt down this killer. Um, but it all takes place in the future, in 2062, where the entire population can astral project. And so taking a classic detective story in a unseen world. And it's been something that I had been wanting to make for the longest time. Um, and I was you know, very, fortunate uh, sitting down with my, my good friend Lee Dewig, who is a professional colors for Marvel and uh, which he's been doing for two decades. And, you know, we were talking about the concept and the idea, and it was kind of after Sanitarium, after Alamo City Studios, very much the same question. Well, what are you going to do next? I was like, well, there's this one idea that I have, but I'd have to go find like a hundred million dollars to go make it. And I, I don't have James Cameron money just yet. Uh, and he's like, well, have you thought about maybe let's turning into a, a graphic novel beforehand? And I was like, that I can do. I can absolutely put together a budget to afford that. And so uh, he had, we talked with one of his good artist uh, friends, Christopher Allen, who also Marvel guy, just incredibly talented. Uh, and then of course my writing partner, Sam Bratton. And uh, we, you know, came together and said, let's, uh, let's make this thing. And so we did. And then uh, it was supposed to come out last year. And that's why I brought it up. <laughs> Yeah, and so it was supposed to come out last year. And of course we had to put the brakes on it. Um, and then it was, it was a 50-50 shot of whether or not we were gonna do it this year. Once again, I decided to roll the dice and say, you know what? I don't wanna wait another year until the book comes out. I, I, I don't wanna wait another year. Cause even the publisher at the time was like, we can, you know, we can hold it back another year if you want. 
And I love the story. I think it's very cool. I think it's a very cool story. Um, I think people are really going to dig it. And I just, I didn't want to wait another year until it came out. So, uh, so it comes out on the 28th, April 28th in stores nationwide. You can contact any comic book store, any local comic book store, wherever you are, and you can order your copy. Well, thank you for the birthday gift. Boom. <laughs> that's a, that's the second book. Uh, there's another podcast I was last year who releases on my birthday too. Uh-huh. And he made the New York Times bestseller list. So, hey. All right. That's, okay. that's a good thing. I like, I like this. Okay, yes. I'm feeling much better about this already. But so what do you see for the future of Alamo City Studios for O oh, yeah. for the uh, for the rest of the year? So, uh, yeah, and we got a website, uh, canyouope.com. Uh, is our website so we'll be having updates and everything else uh, as well as we got a you know facebook page and everything else and social media um but we're, we're really excited so we took the graphic novel we split it up into four mini issues um and they come out april may june july they say that comic-con is going to be happening back on in full force in november now this is a big one right the san diego one san diego comic-con we were supposed to do a big splash, of course, last year, which didn't happen. Um, this year, the July is just going to be virtual, but they're saying that that by November everybody should be vaccinated by that time, and so I think they're going to open the doors and let everybody in. Good, good. So, what do you see for Alamo City Studios for for the rest of the year? Uh, you know, we're we're amped up. Uh, last month was our biggest month in business ever. Uh, so people are coming in, people are shooting, um, whether it's music video, whether it's interviews, commercials, um, you know, people are amped up. I think people are really wanting to get back uh, into the swing of things. So as, uh, as a guy who was an infantry dude, who served with a whole bunch of tough guys, um, what do you say to the infantry guys who have a inkling to want to try to get into film, especially now with the way technology is? Sure. I mean, I certainly, and I, I really do believe that any soldier uh, has, has, has a great uh, advantage um, because of the discipline that and the structure that you get and what the military provides to you, that I think that a lot of artists, unfortunately, uh, get too into their artistic creativeness and they forget the structure and discipline part of carrying out an objective. And so it just gets lost, you know, and just kind of, yeah, disappears over time. Um, but that if it's something that you're wanting to do, use your military training and what you've learned, uh, and, and execute it very much in, in that same fashion. Well, man, thank you for coming on. This actually means a lot to me. We've done almost two hours. Amazing. All right. Yes. Well, great. Well, happy, happy to, happy to be here. Well, thank you. I'm going to end the recording right now. Oops. Almost hit the wrong button. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope you can follow us on social. Check us out at our website, modernronin.com, on Instagram, The Modern Ronin, on Twitter, at TommyChase01. And you can always support us at 
modernronin.locals.com. This is our locals group, and it would be great if you guys joined and subscribed. Some great benefits. Talk to you guys soon.